there are few vocations that require as much faith as the vocation of farming. Because at a certain point, a farmer has to take a seed and he has to just put it into the ground and he just has to trust. He just has to have faith that with ample water and sunlight, the biological processes that fuel life will kick in and that seed and those planted alongside it will be transformed into a crop. It takes a lot of faith to be a farmer. But that is not to say that the faith of a farmer is a blind sort of faith. Because farmers will do absolutely everything in their power to ensure that that seed that they put in the ground has the best possible chance, not just to survive, uh, but to grow and to flourish. So if even today you showed up to a small family farm in the middle of nowhere, uh, you would see that to this end, they're unleashing technology at absolutely every stage of the farming process. So nowadays when farmers roll out of bed, they roll out of bed and they pick up their smartphones, they pick up their tablets and they open up apps that give them the most current, the most up-to-date meteorological data the world has to offer. They can learn about soil moisture content and precipitation events and frost forecasts. And they can use that data to decide, is today the best day to put that seed in the ground? Or maybe I should wait a couple days. Maybe I should wait a week. Nowadays, farmers consult with, with big fertilizer companies who come out to their farms and test the soils in every single field. And then they make fertilizers tailor, tailor-made for a particular crop being grown in a particular field during a particular season. Right, to give those seeds the best possible chance to grow and to flourish. Even the tractors that farmers use nowadays, they're computerized, and a lot of them are self-driving. And they're able to, to plant that seed at the exact perfect depth, and they can plant the rows at the exact perfect width apart to maximize the output of each and every field. It takes a lot of faith to be a farmer. Yes, it does. But the faith of a farmer is not a blind sort of faith. And while historically farmers have not had access to all this high technology that farmers use nowadays, that impulse to do everything in your power to give that seed the best possible chance of growing and flourishing, that impulse has been there since the advent of agriculture about 10,000 years ago. So what I'm trying to get at here is that the farmer in today's story, the, the sower of seeds in Jesus' parable, he is a really lousy farmer. I mean, just, I mean, he's horrible at farming. If we were going to grade him on his agricultural acumen, he'd get like a F plus tops. Because this guy, right, he has a sack of seeds, and it needs to be said that seeds back then were far more a valuable commodity than they are today. And today, seeds are really big business. But back then, they were even more valuable. So he has this precious, scarce, valuable resource in a sack, and he's just grabbing handfuls, and he's just chucking it out into the air without any seeming care as to whether it lands on good soil that will nourish it, or whether it lands on bad soil that will just let it die. He's a 
really bad farmer, and he just doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to care that, that, that some of the seed that he, he scatters out into the world, it, it lands on the path, or I guess beside the path. Jesus says that these are the kind of people in whom the, the gospel does not take root, because they, they hear this gospel message of God's merciful, self-giving, self-sacrificing love, and they just brush it off. Because they just want to keep doing what they've been doing for whatever reason. These, of course, are like the Pharisees that we've been reading about over the past couple weeks. who They, they never really give Jesus' message a, a fair hearing because they're just so convicted, they're just so convinced uh, of their own righteousness, of their, un, their own holiness. Uh, so they never really listen to what Jesus has to say. They are like the seed that falls on the path, says Jesus. But others of the seeds that the steward just kind of flings about willy-nilly, others of these seeds, it lands on rocky soil. Jesus says these are the people who are, are, have such a need for immediate gratification. They have such a need for, for drastic, immediate transformation that they're not willing to put in the hard work it takes to be formed in the ways of love. They're not willing to put in the time. So these are like the crowds that we've been reading about throughout Mark in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The crowds that swarm around Jesus everywhere he goes. They're not interested in the long haul of discipleship. They want an immediate, miraculous healing. Maybe a couple spiritual nuggets to to put in their pocket for later. Uh, But then they go away and never return. These people, says Jesus, they are like the seed that falls on rocky ground. But others of the sower seeds, right, they they fall among the thorns. And Jesus says these are people who are busy, so busy, comparing themselves to other people and trying to impress other people that they never actually get around to tending to what has been planted in their heart. So these outside concerns choke out the, the seed that has been planted and it never takes root. It withers and it dies. But fourthly, and finally, some of the seed actually does manage to land onto good soil. And Jesus says these are the people who hear the gospel message, who hear about God's love, God's gracious, self-giving, merciful love, and they receive it, and they sit with it, and they think on it, and they reflect on it, and they pray on it, and they give it time, and they give it attention, and they let that love grow in their heart until eventually that love begins to bear fruit through their lives. Now these, uh, of course, are, are, are like the disciples who, although they never seem to get Jesus' parables at the first go-around, they don't just give up when they don't understand. They go on and they sit with Jesus. And together they tear apart the layers of these stories and find the wisdom within. So we have four different types of soil, four very different types of soil. One good, three not so good. And we have the sower 
who, unlike every farmer who has ever farmed in the history of farming, he just lets the seed land where it will. He puts in no effort to ensure that his seed will only land on the good soil. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that he he does this not just because he is a a profoundly profligate individual, not just because he is really, 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 truly lousy at his job, but I want to suggest to you that, that he does this because he knows that the only hope that this unproductive soil has is his continued sowing. Because if he keeps throwing his seed on this rocky ground, on the path among the thorns, one of those seeds might just happen to land on that one good patch of dirt within it. And it might take root, and it might flourish, and it might grow, and it might bear fruit into the world. So in 1986, a young Jesuit priest graduated out of seminary, and he was assigned to his first ever parish job. He was assigned to be the, the parish priest of a Catholic church out in Dolores Mission, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles. And in 1986, Dolores Mission was considered to be the gang capital of the gang capital of the world. Every other block of this neighborhood was in the control of another gang. Now, as a clergy person, I can speak with some authority about what most clergy would do when faced with this, with this situation. And what most of us would do would be run to the hardware store, get a couple more deadbolts, maybe some bars for the window, and we would open up the church only on Sunday mornings to let the, good, the self-selected good soil from the local neighborhood come in, come to church, go to worship. But you better believe that after coffee hour, we would lock up all those 16 deadbolts that we installed and, and open them again only the next Sunday. That's what most of us clergy would do, sorry to say. Uh, but not this priest. I need to say his name was Greg Boyle, Father Greg Boyle. Not Greg Boyle. Immediately when he got to this neighborhood, he realized that if he was going to be a, a good sower of the gospel seed in this community, uh, he had to do more for the young men who were involved in these gangs than just preside over their funerals. Because just three months into the job, he had already presided over scores of funerals of these young men who had been killed in the gang violence. So what he did was this, and i got to say, it was not very advisable he jumped on his huffy and he went from gang to gang trying to negotiate peace treaties between them. Uh, I guess needless to say, that really didn't work out very well. Uh, he didn't get shot, but the peace treaties never really came into fruition. Uh, however, in the process of doing that, he established for himself a lot of street cred. Uh, so all the, these gang members, like, they started hanging out at the church at all hours of the day and night. And so he got talking to these young men, he established relationships with them, and he came to realize that that for 99.9% of these young men, they really didn't want to be in gangs. Uh, But they saw it as the only opportunity for them to advance themselves economically in these coming out of broken families and broken homes and broken school systems. They saw this as their only opportunity to advance their lives. 
And by the time they, they discovered that this was a dead end, they were so tatted head to toe, and they had such long rap sheets, no insane employer would actually want to give them a job. And so what Greg Boyle did was he, he started offering tattoo removal services, right, right there on the church grounds. And some of these guys were so tatted up, they had to come back for 96, I guess, lasering? Lasering, is that what you call it? Zaps with a laser. 96 times, that's pretty incredible. And then what he did was he went to the, the factories on the outskirts of towns, and he, he talked to the managers there. And while they, they agreed philosophically with the, the premise that they would be willing to hire young men such as these, uh, no job offers ever materialized. So Father, Father Boyle, he took things into his own hands, and he started a bakery staffed entirely by ex-gang members. That sounds like a really bad idea, but it worked really well. And, and this thing grew, and they were making money hand over fist because word got out uh, about it. And the gang community heard about it, and they were so flooded with applications that they didn't have enough jobs to offer people. So then they opened up a silk screening business, and they opened up a cafe, and they opened up a janitorial service. They'd go to office buildings and, and clean. And the seed that Father Boyle planted in this unlikely place, right? It grew, and it took root, and it flourished. And it flourished so much that that word about it actually reached the White House. And in 2005, Father Greg Boyle fielded a call from Laura Bush, who had heard about it and wanted to come out and visit. So that's exactly what she did. She came and she, she toured the silk screening business and she toured the bakery. And she was duly impressed, I think. So she returned to Washington and several months later, one of her staffers reached out and invited Father Boyle to come speak at a conference followed by a banquet. And along with, with Father Boyle's invitation, he also extended an invitation to three quote-unquote homies. Uh, so Father Boyle chose three guys that he'd been working with for uh, a number of years, guys who had uh, hearts of gold, um, but who, if you had put out a, a, a casting call for, you know, thugs, these were the guys, right? They're all six foot tall, couple hundred pounds on them each, tattoos, chains, baggy pants. If you saw them walking on the street, I don't care who you are, you're walking on the other side, right? These are the guys. So he took them to, to the men's warehouse to get them the first suits that they ever bought. And they walk in and the staff immediately surrounded them as to say, please leave our store. But Father Boyle explained the situation. They got their suits. And with a little trouble, they got on the plane. No big deal. They made it to Washington. The conference went well. The banquet after it went pretty well. It was a, a fancy affair with elegant food arrayed on the tables. Uh, and as one of these young men, he saw a a small white potato with the center carved out and this black stuff in it. He didn't know it was caviar. He popped it in his mouth and immediately spit it out on the floor and yelled, that tastes like not good, he said. He said it doesn't taste good at all. And Father Boyle said that after that, the Secret Service all lurched in a little bit closer around this guy. Uh, but really, it went off with no hitches. So they got on the plane and they were headed back home and uh, one of the boys, a guy named Alex, uh, he said excuse himself to go use the restroom. And he didn't come back for 45 minutes. 
Uh, so when he finally got back to his seat, Father Boyle, of course, made uh, a joke about whether he had fallen in or not. But then he noticed this look of panic on Alex's face. And, and Alex said, Father, I am so sorry. He said, I don't know what I did. I didn't mean to make her cry. And Father Boyle said, hold up, just tell me what happened. So Alex said that after he was returning to his bathroom, he struck up a conversation with one of the flight attendants. And he said, Father, you know, I was telling her all about Homeboy Industries, which is the name of the project, and I was telling her about my job as a tour guide there. I even gave her a little, you know, mental tour of our facilities. I told her how I was working to improve my life to make money to save up and move out of gang territory. And I told her about how yesterday we had made history. We had made history because whereas a lot of crooks had actually lived and called the White House their home, never before had gang members actually been invited there intentionally. I told her that we had made history yesterday and she started to cry. And Father Boyle said, Alex, I'll tell you what happened. What happened was that she saw you. She looked at you and she saw you. She didn't see your tattoos. She didn't see your chains. She didn't see your baggy pants. She saw you. And moreover, she realized that you were a child of God. And sometimes when you recognize that someone is a child of God for the very first time, you start to cry. And Alex, he said, that is a very good thing. And that is what our parable is about. Our parable is about a God who looks down at the soil of humanity and doesn't necessarily see a lot of potential. But this God knows us as his children. And so he does not, does not, does not give up on us. And if we put in the work to look around and really see the faces of those around us, whether we know them or not, we would recognize that they too are children of God. And we would never give up on them. Friends, May we sow the seeds of God's love widely, recklessly, and lovingly. Thanks be to God. Amen.